Welcome to this week's episode of Grow or Die. My name is Alora Chestikoff, and I am from Firebird Summit. My partner in this podcast is Lawrence Henderson from Boss LLC. Every week we meet and discuss coaching topics relative to professional development, personal development, business, and entrepreneurship. Join us and see if there's anything else you'd like to add to the conversation. All righty. Well, hello, hello. I am Alora Chestikoff from Firebird Summit, and welcome to this week's episode of Grow or Die. Hey, hey, everyone. This is Lawrence Henderson from Boss LLC. It's always a pleasure to be here with you, Alora. Always Woo. as well, my friend. Okay, so just to set the <laughs> timing here, since sometimes that matters more than others. It does are the day after the election in 2020 right now. It is November 4th. We are still waiting for returns to come in. There has been no declaration in either case, although Biden is currently projected to be about 17 electoral votes mm -hmm. short of 270. So right now his path looks pretty good. Um, so we'll see how, how that goes. There's gonna be some recounts and some other messiness, but I would say that uh, it's definitely um, it's definitely been interesting to sort of watch everybody's tension level in my universe shift from oh my god I just want this election to be over to yep. oh shit now we wait in limbo and we just sit <laughs> and so it's funny it's it's been like a very different um, sort of uh, wind in the sails right because I think other people or before everybody kind of that I normally interact with has been very desperate for, I mean, hopefully for, you know, the last four years of crazy to, to have a, an end in sight, but even beyond that, just for the election itself to kind of get us to a, some point of sense of resolution. I think um, what's interesting to me, a little disheartening maybe, but interesting is um, I think that with A, the president, the presidency being so close, I mean, we are on a knife's edge from an electoral yeah. perspective. Um, and with the Senate not having moved anywhere near as much as it, the polls were indicating they would, um, you know, Lindsey Graham held his seat in South Carolina, Joni Ernst held, held hers in Iowa, Collins held hers in Maine, which I think is a bigger surprise to me. I mean, there were so many places. I mean, here in Colorado, we did, we did flip one, but like there are so many places that I think there were expected to be more movement. And I think there was a lot of hope that it was going to indicate a turn of the tides. And I think instead what we see is actually the divisions and the divisiveness has mm -hmm. concreted up. And that to me is <sighs> a little harder and more disappointing to yeah. figure out how to move forward. I think the the hope and everybody's always optimistic about like the the what ifs, right? Like yeah. what ifs, what ifs are everybody's sort of yeah. It's it's an easy luxury to fall into, right? Oh, wouldn't it be nice if? Oh, wouldn't it be great if? Or what if this happened? And I think mm -hmm. what regardless of what of what happens over the next few days, the truth is it's close. I mean, we are yeah. we are right on the line that, you know, the Senate right now is split almost even. In fact, it could be that that it's actually the vice president, whoever ends up being in that position that ends up having to cast the tie-breaking vote because the Senate is that close right now. And mm -hmm. so I think there's such a, 
I think there's a sort of general like, oh God, more. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that that's actually kind of what what I I think I want to talk about today is sort of that. You know, we talk about self care. We talk about you know reframing. We talk about all of these things. But I think in a time when COVID is raging, um, as it happens, my stepmother now has it. They have it in their business. My parents own senior care facilities. About half of their residences and half of their employees across three homes have it. My stepmother has it. My father probably can't escape it at this point. Um, and because he has ongoing respiratory issues and has for, you know, whatever, 30 years, that's actually my bigger concern at the moment. But, you know, we've got that is surging. We've got the economic implications of that surging crashing back down. And I think that the this panacea that we had in mind that the election was somehow going to help with some kind of big turning point, I think is now clear. It's not. Um, I think if we had had like a big referendum on on from an election perspective, if Biden had won in a landslide, or frankly, even if Trump had won in a landslide, it would be some degree of vindication of well, at least at least there's enough momentum. Or, and that's not it, right? We are we are dead center split around the country on just about everything. And so now it's a matter of well, shit. Now what do we do? Yeah, it's um, it's a it, it's funny you you say that um, because you know again I'm gonna go back to bring forward um, and and I'm always reminded of this quote. Um, a lot of people, um, even myself, had attributed it to Nixon, um, but it was actually Lyndon B. Johnson. Um, and and so and I'll get to to why I, I go I'm going here. And he's you know read read it verbatim so I don't get it wrong. He said if I can convince the lowest white man, he's better than the best colored man. He won't notice you're picking his pockets. He said, hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. And listening to CNN yesterday, that same narrative, that same motive, there's an undertone to it that sounds like this. And they describe these two camps this, 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 that divide you're speaking of, it's one is speaking of community and another is speaking of economics. And so when you talk about the Republicans and you talk about, you bring up things around social justice, you think about racial inequalities, you think of, it's not even, it's not even in their top things that are important as a group. And you're like, what country are you living in? But if you think about that base who he's been meandering to, for the better part of several years. And you think about what is representative of Royal America as a generalization and stereotype? Low median income, but it's that mentality of association that because I associate with you, I'm somehow better with you in positions of power, right? And, and then you have the other side where you talk about healthcare, you talk about um, jobs, you think about social justice, you think about, you know, legal reform, all that stuff is, is, is up there, right? Which is more community, which is more that conversation versus the economics. And, and, and it's, it's one of those things that for me in the position that I stand in today and in you as well as a coach, um, when we talk about challenging people's mindsets around things, like to me, I am super curious. Like I literally want 
to meet and anybody listening to us, anybody watching this, I want, I want to get in a room to just listen to why you voted party affiliation when a man is misrepresenting what you claim you're voting for. And, and so that that's the part for me, like I can't, it, it was almost like it started like two weeks ago for me in early voting. When you saw prominent evangelicals, you saw all these prominent people, I'm voting for the policies and the ideals of the party, not the person. I knew weeks ago, it was gonna look like this. Just like, if you're already pandering, Weeks ago, with those types of excuses on Twitter, across social media, I was like, oh, I was like, it's going to be closer than people think. I was like, it's not going to go either way. And, and, and that's the parts for me, like, how can we get closer to it being more of what we see in corporate America, where more times than not, we see organizations want the best person in position. I'm talking about good organizations. Good organizations want the best person for the job so that they can help the organization grow, multiply and all those things. But what we're, what we're not seeing is that type of mentality. And what we're saying is, hey, that's my camp, that's your camp, never shall the two meet when that's not what this democracy was supposedly built on. It wasn't built on these divisions. It was like, that's how civil war started was because of divisions. And now it seems like we're so far apart on what's important. I need to know why. Like, why Why are you with their, the differences so staunch and such a large gap between what each side is calling important? And then let's start there. Because to me, if we, if whoever wins doesn't go there, you're missing an astronomical opportunity for our future. Well, and I think this also, so I love Ezra Klein's book, Why We're Polarized, because he gets into this and, and the question of identity and how that, that causes us to align one direction or another. And I think, you know, the, I, to your point about evangelicals saying they, you know, they're aligning with the party platform, not necessarily the, you know, philandering head of the party. At the end of the day, he's cannibalized the party. Like, I, you know, I grew up surrounded by what would now be called moderate Republicans, right? Back then, that was just like uh, the mainstay Republicans. They weren't evangelicals. They were not super religious. And they certainly weren't like this white nationalist, scary stuff that we have happening now. But, you know, they were small business owners and they were, you know, more, I would say libertarian-esque than, than what we would now call most Republicans. And all of them have felt displaced and kicked out of a party that they used to identify with. And I think this is where I have such a difficulty with people who still kind of hold their nose and say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm aligning with the platform. No, 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 the platform has been canalized. At this, at this point, the platform is about him and his ego. And especially where I live now, this is deep red Trump territory. We drive around, so my fiance, he had mega flag waving jackasses in trucks blocking his entrance to his voting location yesterday. Like, like so much of that he kept having to go around the block because they wouldn't let him in. And then when he left, you know, that he had one following him and honking at him and yelling at him out the window until my fiance pulled out his old, you know, his military ID and was like, dude, back off, which still didn't help anything. But like, the point is, is that, you know what I see here? I see two constant images that just 
hurt my brain. One is this cartoon-esque portrayal of Trump as Superman. And the other one is Trump as Rambo. And I'm thinking to myself, holy shit, are you kidding me? No, no, no. First of all, that's actually not what a democracy is supposed to be about. So let's be clear that that's not actually the goal of a president, even if that was who he is. I mean, you know, him in a diaper and a playpen, I find more fitting. But the thing is, is that that's like this gravitational pull and the problem I have, and I have, I have tremendous empathy for my friends who are lifelong Republicans and who believed in fiscal conservatism, national defense, like the things that had historically aligned to create a cohesive platform. I didn't agree with it. Let's be clear on any stretch of the imagination. And I did find a lot of their stuff racist because to your other point, economics and racism are not disassociated. Like seriously, they are fundamentally aligned and trying to pretend that they're not is the classic tool of people who wanna use economics as a weapon against others. But having said that, there was at least a coherent platform philosophy that guided Republican ideology as I was growing up. Now it's just about specific egos and their crazy whack job bullshit. And so I have a real problem with people who say to me, I agree with the party, I'm not a fan of him. No, no, your party is dead. He killed it. You should be pissed at him for killing it. But don't pretend that there's anything left except for his ego and his flags of Rambo crap. It's fun. It's funny that that uh, those are the two examples because it's almost um, he's created this character um, that it's almost like we're going to win, lose, um, not a draw. Um, he, he's like, I won. I I won the reality show. Like he won his version of The Apprentice, and well, and. Yeah. Well, it, that's the problem. Right there is the problem. Yeah. He never wanted the job. He no. doesn't want to do the work mm -mm. involved. No. He just wants to win the popularity contest. There you go. And and that, I think, more than anything, and what they're really talking about in Pennsylvania, why they want to stop, like, it like I just watched them, his son, um, <laughs> God, Eric, um, sound like him look like him and and giuliani and talk about we need to stop this voting and they're not letting our observers in it's because they don't want to hurt his popularity vote count like it's not even without pennsylvania like if you're not watching the news at this point he can win without it so so your argument there is going to be basically futile in 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 another day or so so it's almost going to be like, why'd you waste the energy and resources? It's because he wants to keep the Rambo, Superman action figure, TV reality personality, almost with the six pack abs painted on with his shoulders rolled back when that was never his stature, that was never his stance. And so they've created this reality that of him as, as a person that so many people have like, I'm like, where did this mess come from that he can't like this, this hero? Um, it was like, he's always through time. He's always been a clown. Like he's always been a clown. And, and so now you have, and I go back to, you know, Barbara Kellerman's professionalizing leadership. 
what you described, regardless of the stances of each of these parties and the platforms they used to stand on, the qualifications from a leadership standpoint, and that's been coming up a lot, even the presidential historian, um, Mrs. Goodwin, that, that just spoke, she was like, from a leadership standpoint, like there's no, like it doesn't make good people sense to, for him to have won and then everything he's done to even get this close again, like it doesn't make sense. And so, and, and again, for somebody who loves leadership, the study of it, the practice of it, the, the breaking it apart and peeling the onions, like for me, like he is a walking, breathing four-year case study for my PhD in organizational oh, leadership and how oh, to absolutely. rip an organization apart. Like I'm literally like, if you have elements of this that exist here, your organization will suffer. Like I'm literally going to tear apart the last four years as research for the next two decades, because Easily. I'm going to build out coursework around what he's done from an action standpoint to say, if this exists here in any versions, you got trouble on your hands. And, and I think that's the part of it for me that we need to really break down and study as professionals, as business owners, as people and say, you know what? Damage has been done. What are we gonna do moving forward? We, so we need to wrap our arms around this. Oh, I absolutely agree. So it's funny, a couple of things that you said uh, clicked for me. So first of all, I'm a huge, because I'm a, his, a presidential historian buff, Doris Kearns Goodwin is one of my absolute favorite historians and her leadership work is some of my favorite, not just because uh, she picks the presidents that I most um, really find compelling and good leaders, but also because I think she's very good about kind of stepping back her book on leadership that actually looked at, at the four presidents that she knows the best. Um, was I think very interesting and in how she kind of abstracted the qualities of leadership of the individual and the circumstances that they were in because you know obviously more than anything else right you cannot recreate circumstances like Lincoln faced in the Civil War a Lincoln without the Civil War would not have been the Lincoln that we understand right any more than the LBJ that we know from the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act couldn't have happened if he, if Kennedy hadn't been shot because he started both of those pieces of legislation and LBJ is the one who got him across the finish line. So those were all, and I think for me, part of what I love about her work is recognizing that all people exist within a context and that context has time, it has politics, it has other people, it has other circumstances that you cannot predict or recreate. I think for me, that's endemic of, you know, a coronavirus and, and like all of these things that we never, you know, a year and a half ago, coming into a re-election, you know, Democrats across the country were basically resigned to the fact that we didn't have a great case to make against Trump. The economy was still strong. He was still coasting on, 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 you know, what he inherited from the Obama administration. He hadn't yet pissed everybody off by rolling back healthcare and all the other things that, you know, they've been adamant about doing. So like he didn't have a, a big albatross around his neck until this year. Now he, he wrapped it around his neck three or four times and like voluntarily just made it worse. But the thing is, is that that was a function of circumstance that nobody could have predicted 
planned and certainly not counted on. And we didn't have any idea that we were even in that kind of situation until like April. Um, but the other piece that I think is interesting about what you said is if we look, we, I mean, and, and to your point, right, we could take the last four years of everything he's done from gutting the civil service, from turning, um, you know, career long civil servants into highly politicized roles where now we have a situation where the CDC is fundamentally distrusted because it's been so politicized. Um, you know, where he, his, his, his events last, last week involved the crowd screaming fire Fauci. Like, like that's like crazy ass shit that we never ever would have planned on. But what would that mean if we did that in an organization, right? If you had a CEO that you hired who came in and did that, who undermined, you know, one of the things that I, I deal with a lot in companies is, you know, companies that are in transition, either they just got sold or they're getting ready to be sold or IPOing or whatever it is. And so they're always in this like degree of flux and you always have to walk a line between bringing in fresh blood and fresh perspective and, and new experience that understands some of the hurdles you're about to face because of whatever change you're embarking on versus the legacy people who understand how shit works. And in every organization that, oh my God, like where you find toilet paper is like a legitimate question. Like you, you can't actually get through your day if nobody knows where the coffee pot is and nobody knows how to refill the water. Like those are not stupid, insignificant factors. And so the thing about organizational change that is always, that, and, and it's one of those places that I, discovered by accident I was good at is helping to bridge that right I can I can be part of the legacy team and look at it from with with fresh eyes from the okay look we need this experience we've never you know IPO'd or we've never you know been purchased by private equity or whatever it is right we need this experience and on the other side I've been brought in by the new team and had to be like no guys we have to have some sympathy for the fact that these people have been living a life for five, six, 10 years. And now it just got turned on its head. Like let's have some empathy for their perspective. And so my role is quite often trying to bridge that gap. How do we move forward in this time of enormous chaos and respect the contributions of both very polarized groups? But yeah. the truth hmm. is I've also seen a number of places where we're trying to do that under a leader who doesn't deserve a leader mantle. There you go. And that is so hard to figure out how to back out of. Yeah, and, and it's almost, and I liken it to having this conversation with, with leaders and, and particularly individual contributors that are, and having been one frustrated when you're looking up at this person and you're like, why don't you get it? Then now from the coaching seat, it's getting really curious and investigative around, do they have the capacity? And, and that's why now I love organizational capacity, not just because it's the class I'm in right now um, <laughs> in the PhD program, but getting down to the, the granular levels of, holy smokes, it just what you just said, from a organizational capacity perspective, if something as small as not even knowing where the coffee maker is, is a thing that you have to navigate as a person on a daily basis. Now I'm asking you to be all things for a team of three 
and they're trying to figure out their jobs. And then you're still trying to figure out how to tie your shoes and chew bubble gum, like at the same time. And like, and if we don't understand the ripples from a capacity standpoint and uh, the leaders of the leader knowing how to evaluate and assess to provide resources for that person, then that is going to ripple like to infinity and beyond and like until somebody stops it or until we stop laying it at that incapable leader's feet to fix a thing. But it's for the rest of us to say, hey, do we have the autonomy to stop this train to bring everybody who matters into a room and say, hey, we need to stop the bleeding. We actually need to put a tourniquet on, not a Band-Aid, so we could stop this thing find out what the source of the issue is, and then do something about it. And I think that's where a lot of organizations have been getting in trouble is because they've liked the glorification of success. But now that the bleeding is now at a point where you're hemorrhaging, they don't want to stop. And they're like, well, let's just keep going down this road since we've been heading in that direction anyway, but not knowing if you bleed out, it's dead. Like you're like, you. there's nothing, you can't stop it anymore. And so what I, what I love about what I see as an opportunity, particularly for us as coaches, as leaders, is the level of support. Now people, I believe they will be posturing themselves in a clear, I don't know position. And to me, that is a beautiful thing for people like us, because now, particularly for high capacity people and organizations, if you're looking for your opportunity to be the go-to person, now is not the time to be shy anymore that you actually know how to help your organization get out of something or you know how to navigate some things because now they're going to be looking for capacity of people because even though this is happening in Washington, you have a core group of new business owners and new tech companies and people, there's an uprising that say, that's dysfunctional, I don't want it here. So what do I need to do to not let it happen here? And the ones who allow it to continue to happen, those are going to be the ones that are going to become the exception, not the rule, because I believe there's a wave of professional coming into the workforce now that is like, look, I want authenticity from a respectful level that we can coexist together in spite of our opinions being different. But I need to know you care about me, period. And, and I think that's what businesses haven't been like. They've never seen that before where they're like so staunch in their values and what they say yes to and what they'll say no to that it's It's disrupting business as we know it. So it's interesting that you come back to this point, because this to me is actually where, you know, as much as in my professional work, I try not to get political. This is where I struggle because here's the thing. So when you look at from a macro political perspective, macroeconomic perspective, really, but definitely on a political level. One of the things that is most clearly attributed to the rise of Trumpism, and I will use that as an ism broader than him, um, is was actually the 2008 financial collapse, right? The idea that, that we had this massive economic meltdown and that basically big banks got bailed out and those like leaders got humongous, like six or seven digit bonuses while other people lost, while like normal people lost their houses, predatory lending, all of that crap. It was like a truly terrible thing. And unfortunately, the too big to fail horseshit that we all kind of had to just 
suck it up and and find a way to you know tolerate the fact that our tax dollars were going to you know JP Morgan Chase um, was just simply a something that we I think at a at a surface level considered just the cost of doing business didn't fully understand the degree of very deep-seated resentment that was going to kick off. And I think, you know, when we look at, at recent history, to me, that's one of those things that I look at and I think, yep, I see it now. And in hindsight, it's so clear, but at the time it was just, holy shit, how do we juggle enough balls to kind of get through this, this mess? And I think to me, what the, the corollary that I always come back to is somebody who has been in tech for most of my career, cheap money getting thrown into businesses that have no viable business model, no true leadership, no real market potential, just because somebody has too damn much money and is perfectly happy to write a seven figure check is a bullshit way to try to run a business. And I think that for me, this is, you can't separate the business from the politics. And I struggle so hard in this because I don't want to be the political zealot who can't have a business conversation without it turning political, except the reality is I, for me, look at this whole complicated web of crap and don't see a separation. For me, those two things fed each other in such a toxic way. And it doesn't, you know, we can get into all kinds of specific examples, but for me, and, and I'm working with a client now who was recently sold off from their corporate parent is now owned by, um, by a private equity firm. I have, I have a lot of experience working with private equity firms that are really great pouring money into something right after they buy it. And then they cut it off and all of a sudden they're out, you know, dangling and they have nothing left to do. And now they're starving and they're totally screwed. And I've kind of seen this pattern happen so many times over the past 15 years in my career in tech. And I am constantly stuck with the fact that I hear, and, and I think it's true in tech. I think it's interesting because I think some of, of your experience, especially in the manufacturing world, where I think in some ways it's been a little bit slower to adopt the idea of the values and the idea of the authenticity and the importance mm -hmm. of that leadership, right? For me, what I see from a tech industry perspective is lip service has been paid to that for almost a decade and it's bullshit. At the end of the day, it's still about... Yeah. Treating, treating a new venture like you're flipping a house and you go in, it has to look good to somebody who wants to come in and write a big check, but then you got to be ready to turn it and you got to bolt before they actually start discovering that, you know, there's, there's layers of that onion that are rotten. And so for me, what you're saying is true, but I think I've also kind of been on this, this ride in my particular industry mm -hmm. that's taken us past the conviction point of that. For me, I've gotten truly, and I can be a little cynical, so that's not necessarily a, a big mystery. I've gotten a little cynical about listening, especially in the tech space, to people give lip service to that because I've seen them give lip service to that and then turn around and lay off 200 people without giving it a second thought or without actually considering other options yeah. in a single day. And so for me, I find that to be a very difficult needle to thread, right? Is, it is. And it's part of the reason that as I've gotten older and I've changed my relationship with my career, you know, I've gotten more selective about the people that I work with because I've worked for people who I look at, you know, at the end of the day, I go home and I'm thinking to myself, oh God, I need a shower. 
That was just fucking horrible. Oh, yeah. You know, and it works for others where I'm like, dude, okay, yeah, I'll walk into fire, whatever, whatever you need. And like, and for me, that part has, has been, it's become easier for me to recognize as I've gotten older, but it's because I've had the experience of having made really bad choices when I was younger and listening to people say the right things and then watch them do exactly the opposite, yeah. which is the part that makes me crazier. And I think that's where, you know, I think, you know, in most cases, different industries are on different maturation curves for different trends and things that, that, yeah. you know, that get incorporated. And so I'll be interested to see if, if your view into the manufacturing space mm. is, ha, takes a slightly different tra trajectory. Because I think that the advantage that you guys might actually have is that a lot of the crap that tech has historically espoused has, has turned around and become toxic on them. And we have, you know, I think a crumbling of this facade that the Googles and the Facebooks of the world are like the coolest place ever to be. No, actually they're just helping Russian disinformation bots. That's freaking awesome. That's fantastic. And so I think, I think they're, they're diminishing gloss from a public perspective might help cause a little bit more examination into some of the values they espouse some of the practices they talk about because the truth is in my experience the difficulty in all of those is scale right it's very easy for google as a new company as a startup that only has 100 people to say don't be evil guess what ain't nothing about what google does these days that falls under the category of not evil it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't actually happen that way but it's because those kind of values are based on a very personal human to human connection yeah that simply can't scale because we are fundamentally human. And I don't care how many algorithms any tech yep. wants to write, we are still human and we are limited in the amount of, of surfaces on which we can spread our own empathy. For sure. So that to me is maybe one of the nicest yeah. opportunities For sure. that industries that are, are a little bit farther behind in this trend gobbling experience yeah. might actually manage. Well, and, and, and you bring up a very, 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 very good point, particularly around scaling and actually managing expectation of any venture um, to to really do core organizational culture value work um, as an organization. Hence the reason why um, anybody out there asking, I work with company sizes 50 to 350, like because the bigger they are, the far removed from what's aspirational versus actionable um, becomes. And then it's it gets to how ingrained and indoctrinated um, are people in the subcultures outside of the posters on the wall. Um, and then getting into the conversations about, okay, CEO, when's the last time somebody's actually seen you check one of your direct reports? like you need to set uh, set up a sacrificial lamb like <laughs> like set somebody up like tell them to say yeah. something crazy in a meeting and watch everybody watch you check them openly like you need like you need somebody to say like oh that's just lip service right or or what when's yeah, the last time somebody's been fired in accordance with a value no clothes. who's gonna say the emperor has no clothes and that is exactly that is the most dangerous thing to expect yep. someone to say. And in my experience, one of the most dangerous assumptions I see leaders, yep. and I can say CEOs, but it's not just CEOs. Yep. I see CIOs with CMOs, with yep. all leaders in an organization assume is that, hey, I'm open to feedback. 
they should feel free to say it. Nobody's going to say that. Marshall Goldsmith has one of my favorite articles ever is called, it's not a fair fight when you're the CEO. And he specifically talks about how this, the moment the CEO opens his mouth, he throws off the tone, the intent, the expectations, everything every single time and never realizes it. He can feel like he's being egalitarian. He can feel yep. it. The very nature of your role precludes equality. And as much as we like to think of ourselves as a meritocracy and all these other kinds of things, the truth you is that it. doesn't ever actually happen. I've been having a very similar set of conversations with a client I've been working with who's like, you know, the C-level said, oh, hey, I know this, I know this team, they can do this thing, go ahead, you know, put, I'll put you in touch, you know, and everybody who was on the receiving end of that message heard, I don't know what was said, because I wasn't there, but what they heard was, go use this provider to do this. And now six months later, this provider is a source of frustration, difficulty, doesn't look like they actually match requirements, all kinds of things. And all I, all I hear from people is, whatever you do, don't be heard criticizing them. Don't, nope, can't say anything about them because they came from the top. And it's like, oh my God, are you kidding me? This is a mess. And the thing is, I know for a fact, guy who, who made the introduction didn't think or expect anybody was going to take his recommendation or his introduction as a directive. And to this day, he still insists, I didn't force the issue. I just made an introduction doesn't change anything. And I think to me, that's where we get into yep. this really problematic cognitive dissonance, right? Between what, and, and on the culture front, you know, the other thing that comes mm -hmm. up, you said is, so again, as somebody who spent most of her life in, in retail and travel, there's also a big cultural difference between headquarters and 100%. regional locations, right? 100%. Regional locations often have you know, hourly employees who do shift work, uh, yep. sometimes union, sometimes not. But, you know, if you're at the, if you're in an airport environment, that could be union. Like there are so many like variables that factor yep. in that a fundamentally different reality out in the field versus what you have in headquarters. In headquarters, I got the marketing team, I got the IT team, I got the exactly. finance team, HR. And like that is, that is a different universe. And there's a very big tug of war in, in a lot of what, where I work with that ability to recognize that, Hey, I, you know, when you're, when you're working for, uh, in headquarters, at a retailer or, you know, uh, any, any business that's been massively impacted by COVID, right? We all get to work from home. I, you know, I, I work in IT for most, you know, in most of these settings, right? Or IT is, is where I'm brought into organizations. All right, well, dude, I've been living in a world where the IT guys get to work. We've been working from home for, you know, 15 years at least. Some of us haven't been in an office in that long, for God's sake, <laughs> you know? Whereas, if you're in a restaurant, if you're in a, you know, in a chain restaurant or you're in a, in a retail store, you, like there is no working from home. Like it, it, that doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way. And the challenge we have is reminding ourselves, my reality is not everyone else's reality. And I, in order to be an empathetic human being, have to actually say, oh yeah, that's right. I can do my job on a computer. I can do my job from the comfort of my office in my house, frankly, in whatever the hell city I want to live in. I spent six months last year doing it outside of the country just because I could. If I worked in a, if I was flipping burgers or I was actually, you know, folding, folding jeans, 
in a in an actual physical location or or checking in passengers on a plane i wouldn't have been able to do that and and again what does that disconnect what is that difference in daily function and experience mean we need from our leaders yeah it 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 almost lends itself to <laughs> sending everybody to a coaching certification program <laughs> like <laughs> you know what's funny is it actually it's in and it, i you know i had a conversation with my fiance because there's so many things that I, you know, I think judgment was the biggest one, but I think empathy was probably number two that I thought I was good at until I actually started on coaching training. And then I, once I was like hit deep in it, I'm like, oh, good. Exactly. And I think me and you, we've, we've detailed both of our experiences of those breakthroughs, like, oh crap, I literally wasn't that good at it. Like, I mean, I didn't know, I didn't know what empathy was until somebody used it towards me in a derogative way um said I didn't have it um <laughs> but it was one of those things like oh awareness um let, let's go after this thing and I really believe like like manager as coach in in doing that session back in the spring like you need to revive that thing because living breathing today like are you asking first or or do are you posturing and unaware that your posture and your presence makes it feel like you're telling and and you gave the perfect example of their intent but the awareness lack of awareness about their position and their role and who they were talking to and the lack of understanding of how that group portrayed them and was perceiving them and experiencing them right to even have those those kind of behind the scenes comments about you better not say nothing about them um and and, and for a lot of leaders it's literally like, nah, I hear you saying you you're open to feedback, but what you gonna do with it once you get it? Like, and that and that's the other part. People have been on the bad end or wrong end of, hey, I gave it, and then you had such a visceral reaction. I felt threatened after that, or I felt like I had a target on my back. I remember I recall working for an organization, and that's all they said about one of the leaders, and I was like has anybody ever been fired in accordance with this leader and this target that y'all made up? And nobody could ever point to anybody that had ever been fired until they got their one. Like, and when they got their, oh my God. And when they got the one, oh, it was like, see, see, we knew it. We knew it. We knew it. And it was just like, did y'all see the list? Like he should have been fired 10 years ago. <laughs> like, <laughs> here's the thing. And this is actually, I think in, in your example here, I think yeah. is a perfect example of this, right? You know, I had somebody ask me recently, why is the bad stuff easier to believe? Right. And, and it actually came up within the context of the political election and negative yeah. ads and things like that. Right. Because, because, and the truth is, now that we understand more about how the brain works and there's a whole lot of psychology that goes into explaining it, the bad stuff sticks more, it's fight or flight lizard brain stuff, like we, like all yeah. of that stuff. But the reality is the bad stuff, the fear, the dread, the anticipation, mm -hmm. the scarcity, all of those things are much easier to tap into, which means, and here's the irony, right? This particular client, I would be willing to bet he really does not understand that he was perceived to have cast the business to this vendor that is, it turns out, is making everybody miserable. Now, having said that, 
I'm also not totally convinced he'd be really open to that feedback, but I know he believes that he's projected that he would be open to that feedback. And this is where the coaching stuff gets really kind of fun and a little meta because when it comes down to it, I can look at it and say, okay, look, I'm, I'm totally outside. I am one of the only people who under the right circumstances could possibly consider saying the emperor has no clothes here, but A, would it do any good? Like that's the first question, right? I mean, it's one thing to put yourself out on a limb, but in order to do it, you have to believe there's value in it. I'm not totally sure I would buy that there is in this particular setting for a whole bunch of reasons that I don't, that aren't even worth getting into. But the second piece of that is, will I pay a price for that that I don't, I'm not prepared to pay? And I think this is such a hard question. You know, last week, I think we, we were talking, I mentioned the movie Margin Call, and I've been thinking about this movie a lot recently. And it's, again, it's a great movie. It does a, an amazing job of, um, and it sounds like I just watched it, but actually I just rewatched it recently, which is why it's been forefront of mine. But it does a really good job of showing how, and I think it's a system design, not a flaw, that we have abstracted out personal accountability from so many things, right? We've, and when you watch this movie, you get to see how individual people going up, running up to the beginning of the financial collapse in 2008, looked at things and said, well, this doesn't really look right. I've raised it to my manager, but they didn't do anything with it. So, okay, well, I guess that means I don't do anything because I have a family that needs me to make a paycheck. I need to not rock the boat. Or as things were unfolding in this particular day, right? They would bring, they brought in people who had just been fired and basically paid them a million dollars to come sit for a day and help strategize about how to recover the situation. And you're looking at all of these things and you're seeing very clearly, and they did an amazing job in this story of showing how each person was confronted with the opportunity to make a choice. And in that choice, they each chose what was best for themselves and their family. And ultimately that was at the expense of the whole rest of the fucking world. And to me, what's amazing about this story is that it's, an, it's a fantastic cautionary tale. It also helps really, again, come back to explaining Trumpism because once you understand that this is this is what happened and there's no accountability, there's nobody who's like all of these guys, cashed, you know, seven, eight figure checks while other people had their homes repossessed. Like it's, it's hard not to find opportunity for resentment in this. But what's very telling to me is we often create situations or find ourselves in situations where we have to make a choice. And this is why I think the values point to your point is super important because at the end of the day, sometimes that's all you can pick. You can say, look, my family needs me to pay the mortgage. Like that's, that's it. And maybe we are overextended. Maybe we are overly reliant on my personal income and we don't have, maybe that's it. And I do have to make that choice. But if I have to make that choice, I think as a person, I should have to acknowledge what I'm sacrificing to make that choice. If that means that my sacrifice is I'm going to have to live with knowing that there were a thousand people who were put out of their homes so that I can keep my family in mind. I can't change the fact that that's the choice I'm making, but I need to acknowledge that and I need to 
own it. And I think that's one of those, again, we're back to why I struggle so hard to separate politics from business because I see such deep rooted intertwined connections in how it brings all of us to choices we have to make on a daily basis. It might not work at a Lehman Brothers where we could have necessarily had a direct impact there, right? But we still function as bosses and as managers and as leaders or as advisors or whatever our capacity is. And how do we balance, hey, you know what? I'm gonna go home five o'clock tonight. <laughs> I just, I wanna go home. I'm tired, it's been a long week, whatever with, okay, like I have to acknowledge that if I do this, then I am sacrificing. When I say that I think human dignity is important, when I say that I think that, you know, social contribution is important, whatever my values are, authenticity, freedom are, are my two big ones, but I have other ones as well. When I say those things are important and I choose, hey, I'm just tired, I'm gonna go home and have a glass of wine. Again, fine, I believe in the importance of choice. I'm a, the world's biggest advocate for that each person has the, the ability and the agency to choose, but that choice has a price. And I think that those of us who make a choice and then stick our head in the sand about the price that others pay for our choice are being irresponsible. And I think that when it comes to all of these things, the election, leadership, Trump is a leadership example, which is a horrifying case study and yuck. All of these things, to me, that's what I keep coming back to is that we always have a choice. Yes, we all have obligations. We all have responsibilities. Not all, I mean, we talked a couple of weeks ago about having to suck it up when you have a job that you hate and you have responsibilities that you can't, you can't take care of without keeping that job for at least a while. But there's always a price tag. Well said. Yeah, well said. Man, that's great. This is a great one today. Great one. <laughs> it, was me it was messy and convoluted today, but I again, it. I want, I, I constantly start our podcast thinking, okay, well, I'm not going to get political today. I'm not going to get political today. Well, well and to, I think a good, po a good point that that's something that I've been wrapping my mind around, right? And we've all been conditioned as business people to that, that whole thing of, hey, don't, don't bring that personal stuff here. Don't bring that mushy stuff here. You come to work. Well, if COVID hasn't taught us anything, all of it lives on the same noodle. I, yeah. I'm, I am I'm spouse. I am partner while I'm in the office. But guess what's waiting on the outside? Matter of fact, I got the dog on the floor right now. And, and I got to be I got to be fur daddy. Um, and then when I walk out there, I got to do honeydew stuff. And then matter of fact, what I got a text message while I was on a podcast or on a video conference and I got a grocery list like like and so to, to think of that, we could separate these things. I think we, we need to begin to reframe them to say, how can they coexist respectfully and tactfully? And now we begin to have that conversation because as you alluded to in, in your, your flawless examples of there is no separation of church and state. If, if I'm involved, then it's all involved. And, and so, again, I'm not separating one day. I, am I a Christian? Am I non-denominational? Am I a leadership and organizational coach? I'm all of those things. So guess what? They all come to the party with me and whatever. Well, the and and you're always going to be a black man. You can't, it, it is not, I, 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 I am always going to be a white woman. You are always going to be a black man. I can't scrub it off. I'm sorry. Exactly. You, you, <laughs> you can't go to an event or talk yeah. to people and be like, 
oh, hey, I am just showing up as a Christian today. Well, because you're still a Christian black male. Still like a Christian you, black man. That is that's still, that's still- It is what it is, right? In the world, as much as I, we like to like dice and slice it, oh, hey, I'm a liberal or I'm an atheist or I'm like, well, dude, I'm all of it. And yep. I'm a dog mom and I don't have kids. And I have, yeah. you know, I've, I've, I come, I'm from an immigrant family. Like there are so many things and they all wear on and you can't split them out. And I think for me, what's really useful about recognizing mm. that to my point about trying not to be political is that institutionally we do the same thing, right? Yep. With that, that is the personal example, but yep. institutionally we have the same issue where, where politics and banking and finances and real estate and investments, all of the, and technology and all yeah. of these things work together or not at all. Like we cannot separate out that stuff and split out sure. business politics any more than we can split out business from personal or politics from personal it's all a jumbled mess of stuff that we all have to facet together and the funny part about that is trump acknowledged his tax break thing as a result of politics and he was like well that's something you and obama came up with like and i like i think that flew over a lot of people's heads that he acknowledged it like thank y'all like <laughs> so the business like it's a total like you said businesses are benefiting from political moves and all the rest of it. So to say that's off limits to add, to have as a conversation, come on, you're not being real. Like you, you're not being authentic. And But can we have a, a conversation where, yes, our values still apply. I'm still going to be respectful, even though I'm going to agree to disagree with you at this time. But hey, Laura, you want to go catch lunch? Like, like we're still going to have to do business together and talk and commune. And, and we still have to make choices, right? You still 100%. have to decide, you know what? This is someone, yeah, I might need the money. I might need the business. Yep. But this is someone that I'm not okay doing business with. I am not okay actually saying, hey, I endorse how you conduct exactly. business by doing business with you. Exactly. And there are times when we are, when we struggle to be in a position to do that. And that, you know, again, that's that whole yeah. suck it up and do the job, even though you hate it thing. But the truth is when it's over, if your only desire is to go take a shower because you feel scuzzy, that's probably a pretty good sign that that was not the choice yeah. that your integrity wanted you to make. There you go. Ooh. All right. There we go. All righty. Well, as always, my friend, it has been a wonderful conversation, even Definitely. though, like I said, I think it meandered more than I intended, but it's like everything else in this particular season, nothing ends up where you thought it was going to start. At all. Until next time. All righty. Take care, my friend. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining me and Lawrence in this week's episode of Grow or Die. Join us next week when we'll take on our next topic. In the meantime, have a fantastic week.